0: This is Bigger Questions, with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, will science save us? We're asking today's big question to Dr Dennis Alexander. Dennis is Emeritus Director of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, and also Emeritus Fellow of St Edmunds College in Cambridge. He worked for many years as a molecular biologist, and now he writes, lectures, and broadcasts widely in the field of science and religion, and he joins me now from Cambridge in the UK. Dennis, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank
1: you very much. You're welcome.
0: Now, Dennis, you're involved with the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. So what exactly does the Faraday Institute do?
1: Well, we are a research institute based here at the University of Cambridge. And our main aim is to do research in the whole area of science and religion to see how these two disciplines uh, engage with each other, talk to each other uh, from an academic perspective. But we also do a lot of courses and publications, and we're trying to help people, just uh, general non-scientists as well, to think carefully about what these topics are really about and what they mean.
0: So the interface between science and religion, uh, that, that's really where you're, you're thinking,
1: That's where that's really where you're at that's where we're at indeed yes
0: right yeah now i do seem to remember something about faraday from my high school physics so who exactly was faraday
1: well michael faraday was a wonderful scientist as we would now call those people from the 19th century who really was one of the uh, inventors of electromagnetic induction in the sense of how do we use it to make electricity the fact that we're even talking to each other today we can thank michael faraday uh, because he he was a great discoverer. And he ended up as director of the, of the Royal Institution in London and ran the laboratories there for many, many years. And that's why we thought we'd name our institute after him because he was also a very committed Christian and mm-hmm. also saw his science and his faith being wedded together. So we just thought, here's a great name. We should name our institute after him, which is what we did. And we wow. started it up in 2006. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so
0: we have to uh, Faraday to think uh, for electricity really is that is it is it that much to say?
1: Oh, entirely correct, yes, entirely correct. He wasn't much of a mathematician, James Clark Maxwell came after him. James Clark Maxwell really gave the mathematical underpinnings to what uh, Michael Faraday had discovered experimentally. He was a great experimentalist. he does love mm. playing around with bits and pieces and made some wonderful uh creations, discoveries, and that. Mm. So
0: does that mean that you use lots of electricity in Faraday's honour?
1: We certainly do and we should use less. But right now, of course, we're all working from home and uh, we're all very dependent on technology, aren't we? It's amazing. Mm
0: -hmm. But was his faith just simply the product of his age or was was there some conviction there despite that?
1: It was a very personal Christian commitment on the part of Michael Faraday I don't know if he ever saw a particular conversion experience in his life but he certainly grew up as a christian he grew up thinking christianly and his faith was always very real to him and made a huge difference at the same time he was very modest about his faith he didn't talk about it much but you know he would be sort of discovering electricity during the day and the evening he would go off to the Sandemanian church in the East End of london and he'd be going out to do social work because the church had a very strong emphasis on helping the poor and the dispossessed at the time and also it was a church without any priests so it was more like um the brethren or the quakers you call them today i guess where you you know people just sat around and they worshipped god together he met his wife um at the uh, in, in his wife actually was the daughter of one of the elders in the church so the church was a very integral part of his whole life
0: and mm, made a real difference to to his life
1: i think it made a total difference and there have been quite a lot of biographies and writings about this and how it in fact, some people have argued that his Christian thinking um, impacted upon the way he thought about, especially the whole understanding of fields in physics, magnetic fields. I think probably most of us are familiar with an experiment we did at school. You have a magnet, you know, and you put all those iron filings down, and it creates this wonderful field around the iron magnet. And of course, he discovered that and he noticed that, and he wrote a lot about it, and he used it in his experiments. And some people have thought that because he believed in a god who acts at a distance therefore he didn't really have any problem with the idea this the whole concept of fields you know the concept of action at a distance was very important to him
0: mm. or action that's invisible perhaps as well that you did that you that's, that's real but you can't see it, you can't discern it with the naked eye
1: exactly right yeah because i think a lot of people thought it was a bit spooky you know i mean how can a magnet have some action at a distance uh, but for michael faraday nothing was spooky he he sort of he wrote about it as it's like God working in the, the all like a, God has almost a finger, you know, just acting on everything all the time. So you had this great understanding of God as creator as the God who upholds and sustains everything that exists all the time.
0: Well, that's fascinating, the story of Faraday. But what about your story then, Dennis? What fascinates you about science?
1: Well, I've always been greatly fascinated just with the workings of the biological world in particular. My Mother actually uh, studied physiology in Oxford uh, a few years ago, 1930 to 1934. She was one right. of the early uh, early women to study physiology as a woman at Oxford because in those days it was pretty much a man's world. Actually, mm-hmm. when I went to Oxford myself in the mid 1960s, I thought it would be fun to go and look for her photo in the metriculation year that she was involved in. Unfortunately, uh, in the biochemistry department at that time, all those uh, photos were up there on hanging on the wall So I went to look for. 1930 i think it was or 31 and there was the photo of her in her first year with all her colleagues and they were all men there was just a sea of men in black ties mm-hmm. and black suits and there were two women one was my mother one was a great friend and both of the women were christians because they came from really? a denomination which had a very strong emphasis on the education of women and uh, and so you know she was quite a pioneer i think in that way by studying physiology And she wanted to then be a a doctor eventually, but in fact she met my father. And in those days you pretty much had to make a decision. Which which way are you going to go? Are you going to have a family, get married, or are you going to have a career? And so she chose a family, that's why I'm here. Okay? So she was strongly influential in my love for science. My father actually, um, he was a businessman, but his father was a doctor who died during the pandemic, the first pandemic. And he died in 1918 from the pandemic during a long story, but again, he was helping uh, sailors uh, crossing the Atlantic during the end of the first world war. And he, uh, they all got Spanish flu and he caught it and he died. So, but I inherited my grandfather's microscope and used to poke around with squiggly things in the back garden and just loved doing that kind of stuff from a very early age. So I think there was a strong influence there from both parents who loved, their christian faith but and they also love their science together
0: hmm. so was that formative for you both the christian faith and the science you didn't see that as being a conflict to to have both when you're growing
1: up no never i think the old idea of a conflict was bizarre i'd never heard of it at all and i was growing up with faith with both really the parents who love christ and with um parents who love science and i just grew up with those two loves really And the whole idea of them being in conflict would have been a very bizarre idea for my parents and myself. Mm.
0: So then what was that then convinced you that the Christian uh, worldview or the Christian message was true? Was it just because of your parents?
1: Well, I used to think that, you know, but then of course I started going, they sent me to a young people's movement in those days was called Crusaders, which is not a great name (laughs) when I think about it now. But in those days it was perfectly acceptable. And as they changed their name since then, thankfully. But anyway, it was a great movement where I mixed up with all kinds of young people and uh, we just messed out together and had great times and used to meet together for a time of Bible study and worship on a Sunday and so on. And that peer group was very influential in my life. And on, when I was 13, we went on for a camp. We went out for a camp together down in the Isle of Wight. And there I heard a speaker explain well, you know, you can't become a Christian just being brought up in a Christian home. Always remember this analogy. You know, you don't become a Ford just because your father was Henry Ford, or some some analogy like that you get when you're a boy. Uh, anyway, uh, and the story actually, I remember very clearly. Um, he, this guy, this chaplain who was giving his talks every day. He talked about um, the thief dying on the cross. You know, there were two thieves, of course, um, dying on the cross with Christ. One of the one of them rejected Christ, and the other. Uh, accepted Christ right there just before he died. And Christ turned to him and said, you will today be with me in paradise. And I thought, wow, as a kid, you know, that means he really didn't have to do anything. He had no works at all, you know, to get right there in to be with Christ for all eternity. That made a huge impression on me. Anyway, I realized that I had to make my own personal decision to accept Christ as my savior, uh, to become a Christian. And that's what I did at the camp at the age of 13. I, right, never, yeah. looked I never looked back after that.
0: Wow. And that was that was liberating for you. That was you found that uh, the the gift of free grace was really powerful.
1: It was a very powerful uh, moment in my life. I can't say you know I was age thirteen. I, I wasn't into drugs, <laughs> rock and roll. Okay, and then came out of that dramatic background. It wasn't liberating in that sense, but I think it was liberating in a sense of a knowledge of my sins were forgiven, not because mm. I was born in a Christian home, not because of anything that I'd done but because of God's love and his free grace to me. And that was a very powerful moment in my life and continues to the present day to be so. Mm.
0: Now, there is an idea, though, Dennis, that Christianity impedes scientific progress. It's common to believe that nothing holds back scientific and technological progress like religion. So how did your Christian faith then intersect with your scientific research?
1: Well, I think the assumption that some people have about that, of course, is complete nonsense. Um, And as soon as you read the history of science at all, you'll realize that modern science was started by Christians, basically. Um, That's controversial to say. Well, you know, I'm putting it pretty bluntly, but it's just, okay, you can nuance that quite a bit. Yeah, okay, there was ancient science amongst the Greeks. Of course, there was the great Islamic science from the 9th to 13th centuries. And of course, there's been a long development of scientific ideas. So I will now nuance my statement slightly. (laughs) Okay, but when you come to the emergence of a uh, of early modern science and i'm thinking particularly of what people still to historians still call to the present day the scientific revolution so you know the 16th and 17th century then you get the founding the founding of the first uh, scientific societies like the royal society in the early 1660s and you know the, these were people who saw their science as like a christian mission and nearly all of the let's take the the royal society in london early 1660s these people uh with uh, the large part very committed christians and not just nominal christians i mean they wrote a lot about their christian faith and how it interacted with their science bishop wilkins who was the master of Wadham college in oxford in fact the royal society started as a discussion group in his rooms in Wadham College in Oxford. And that's really what developed into the Royal Society. So it was really started by a bishop and there were plenty of bishops involved. There were plenty of people like Robert Boyle, founder of one of the founders of Modern Chemistry, who wrote a huge amount about his Christian faith and how it impacted and inspired and helped his scientific endeavors. So when you look around at the great majority of the early natural philosophers, as they were called in the 16th, 17th century, you find that most of them were people with deep Christian conviction. So, yeah, just read the history of science if you want to see how science was started by Christians. To come back mm. my initial assertion, <laughs> which I support. It's fascinating. Yeah.
0: Now, considering scientific progress, the coronavirus pandemic has caused all sorts of challenges across the world, with over 100 million cases and over two million deaths has been an enormous medical and scientific challenge with many people have turned to science and the search for the coronavirus vaccine. Now, some have said that never before have scientists and clinicians united with such scale and singular focus. The research into COVID-19 is a bit different to cancer, which is your area of expertise, but what have you made of the scientific response to coronavirus?
1: Well, I've been immensely impressed. And I should say by the background, um, although yes, I have done cancer research, molecular immunology was in fact my field of research so i was running the program of molecular immunology at the babraham institute here in cambridge for many years and running a lab in molecular immunology. so so i've from a purely biological you know immunological perspective i found indeed the whole impact and uh responding response to the scientific community very impressive indeed and very mm. encouraging and i just think the way that scientists jumped on this whole Question right from the beginning, well before the politicians had called up, they were on the case. And of course, the uh, generation of the vaccines, which are now coming to in, in practical use, I got my first jab just uh, whenever it was about a week ago. And uh, you know that that was really because people got on the on the case very quickly. They saw the potential danger, and they jumped on the uh, jumped on it quick.
0: Mm. So, how confident can people be about the coronavirus vaccine?
1: Oh, I think, providing it's been through the trials, obviously, and, and been, you know, the, in trials in any medication, there's a phase one, phase two, phase three, and it's it's a phase three trial that really counts. Um, and the phase three trials involves, obviously, tens of thousands of people. So you need to make sure that that uh, vaccine you're going to get, it's been through the phase three trials. It's been uh, approved by the national bodies you have in your country for approving new medications finally it's got through that yeah just use it there's absolutely no hesitation you should have in using it at all
0: Mm. so what do you make of the speed at which the vaccine was developed like this is almost unprecedented in some cases that a vaccine has been developed 12 months after the virus
1: has emerged i think it's incredible i can remember thinking well i said not just thinking but saying to my friends back in march of last year i said look if we get a vaccine by christmas that'll be miraculous If we don't get a vaccine by April of this year, now 2021, I will be disappointed. Okay, so, um, yeah, the the miracle happened in the sense that (laughs) we did have a vaccine by Christmas just, you know, not in widespread. Yes. But, you know, it was already developed and approved um, in some countries and so forth. So it is remarkable. And of course, the way it's happened is because of uh, I mean, no corners have been cut in terms of assessment. That's absolutely critical to point out. Um, This thing has been assessed very thoroughly, you know, the Pfizer vaccines, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, the Moderna vaccines. I mean, these have have gone through their phase three trials, just like any medication.
0: Now, in recent months, there have been a number of articles with the theme that science will save us from COVID-19. There is confidence that science and the vaccines that scientists created will stop the pandemic and save the day. So is it too much to say that science will save us from coronavirus?
1: no i think that's uh, i think that's a fair comment I, mean, I think it's important to point out it's you know it's not just science because you've got a lot of i mean if you're just thinking of the immediate you know coming six months nine months 12 months there'll be a lot of restraints uh, in our country right now we've a pretty terrible time and so i don't think people should see it as some sort of magic potion that you take and then everything will the whole problem will be solved no it's much more subtle than that and of course We have to keep our social distancing, we have to keep in the the present UK case, we're in lockdown. So you you can't just assume you get the jab, that's it. So point one, of course, vaccines take a while to work. Uh, Point two, quite a few of these vaccines, you need a second jab and you won't have very high immunity until you've had the second jab and so forth. So providing though people use the technology wisely and the jabs are carried out in a sensible way, yeah, then I think science in that sense will save us from the devastating impact of the coronavirus in the longer term, as well as of course, the various therapies that are coming along. And there's a lot of, obviously a huge amount of research on medications that will help to alleviate the symptoms of COVID and will prevent people having to get in a hospital and uh, getting onto ventilators and so forth. So, and dexamethasone was, you know, is a good example which is uh, one of the great um, discoveries, actually, of of last year, that dexamethasone will help a lot of people um, and prevent the worst symptoms of COVID happening to them, although, sadly, only in a small percentage of people, not the whole lot. But there'll be other medications like that coming along, I am sure, in this year. So will San save us from us? Yeah, I think San will.
0: Dennis, the Bible claims that Jesus saves. So in Acts 4.12, speaking about Jesus, uh, it says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So so what's meant here? Because Jesus can't save us from the pandemic, though, can he?
1: Well, I think, you know, what's happened is that God, through Jesus, has given us this wonderful creation and he's told us to subdue it. We get mm-hmm. um, a command to subdue the the world around us uh or care for it the world although the word subdue is quite strong actually in hebrew way right back in genesis chapter one that's the that's the duty we've been given the mission that's what being stewards of the earth involves that we should care for it and look after it and subdue it as necessary so i see cancer research as subduing the earth i see um coronavirus infections and how to get you know how to solve them is subduing the earth so so god has given us that know-how and he's given it up to us to get on with the job you know to care for the earth and to heal the sick and of course as we follow christ uh who is a great healer he gave us this wonderful example that we christians should be out and about healing the sick which of course is why medicine in so many countries of the world is started through christian hospitals because of that great command. And you go way back in church history and Christian history, you find hospitals very, very early on. And so Christians certainly have been um, aiming to, um, to heal people, to help people in the present age. Now, of course, that will save them physically, uh, and that's great, and that's what we should be doing, as Jesus told us to do. But getting a solution, a vaccine to coronavirus is not gonna be a vaccine for sin that's the bottom line so we are still sinners we need salvation we need Christ um, to die for us which he has and we need to put our trust in Christ for salvation and that's what acts 4 12 is about because Christ was uh, God incarnate in flesh on this earth so how could there be any other way If God himself the God of the whole universe the Creator has come into this world in the person of Christ it's hard to know how there could be another way if that is true if that is true That's an amazing truth. So that has opened up a new way, in order in 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 which through which we can become uh, friends of God. We can know God in a personal way, and have real salvation, both now in the present time, spiritual salvation, but also in the future as well. And that is a wonderful medication for sin, if you like. Mm. So, which is more serious then, sin or coronavirus? Well, I think sin is a lot more serious, and the reason for that is. coronavirus can kill you um um, it'll just kill you in this life but sin can kill you for this life and the future life as well okay so sin has eternal consequences um and so that makes it on a different scale from coronavirus doesn't it i mean obviously we hate coronavirus we wanted to we wanted to go we want to subdue it we want to heal people absolutely but at the end of the day we all have to die from something or other whether it's coronavirus or being run over by a bus or whatever it might be, we're going to die. So it seems to me very logical and rational that we should be ready for that and we should be ready for death. And one way of getting ready for death is to solve this problem of sin in our lives through the forgiveness that Christ offers us. So I think that to me is just a logical, rational step. Mm. And by the way, I think, you know, some, of course, some atheists here Christian was talking about saying, well, we think the that uh eternal salvation is more important than than the vaccine and so on and they go oh, that means that christians are anti-science oh no 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 it doesn't mean that at all you know we just have to realize that it's it's a it's a relative em- emphasis or value that we place on things isn't it but mm-hmm. some things become more or less valuable a little bit in comparison with other things that's what the discussion is about
0: But given that salvation is found in no one else, does that then mean that Christians shouldn't have medical help or that God is opposed to being saved by science? Or perhaps that you getting the jab is somehow wrong, because some have been praying that God will save them from the virus without any medical assistance. One pastor once said, COVID-19 is an evil from which control and protection can only come direct from the Almighty. So what do you make of that, that God will act independently of any medical or scientific advance?
1: Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus himself, in some of his miracles, used the science, the medications of his day um, as part of his healing process. And uh, there was a man born blind, for example, and Jesus picked up some mud and he smeared it on the blind man's eyes, which sounds a bit crude to us now, but actually that was a very common uh, medication of that particular time. Now, in the context, of course, of who Jesus was, I don't think we need to believe that that particular medication opened the man's eyes. But I think what Jesus was saying is, look, I, I can use the uh, materials around me, and but by God's, uh, his father's special power and grace, I can open your eyes, which he did. And the man's eyes was, oh, he was opened, you know, he was uh, healed. But I think that gives us a hint, you know, that also when uh, Jesus sends out his disciples to heal people and to pray for them and to care for them, you know that's a mission given to the church uh as i was saying earlier right from the beginning so if you go way back to the fourth century and 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 those early days you can you can find what we would now call hospitals care homes for the sick which are run by christians <clears throat> and so christians are right in there in the founding of what we now call our modern medical services and i think that just is the tradition in which it's normal for christians to be so the idea that somehow, yeah, sure, God can do what He wants, but it so happens, you know, that God has told us to go out and heal people, okay, and to care for people, uh, and so we need to obey the command of Christ. Um, and I think that's the important part of this whole story. So I, I don't go along with people who just—I uh, think they're fatalists. Fatalism is not part of Christian faith, okay? Fatalism is part of other religions, by the way, but it's not part of Christian faith. Christian faith is about trusting God and then using his wonderful creation to help each other uh to get healed and i think that's the way that christians should go
0: mm. so these people they believe that god is larger than the dreaded virus
1: so do you think the virus is bigger than god well i think god has created a world in which uh it's like a package deal and so i think we have to accept this tough world in which uh, god has placed us he's placed us in a world in which spiritual growth is possible and feasible and encouraged and i always think of this world more like a boot camp than a holiday camp god has put us in a boot camp okay so we better you know remember that it's a tough world it's a world where there's suffering and pain and many opportunities to care for each other and it's like phase one of god's great plan phase two is the new heavens and the new earth this new creation that god is preparing for those who put their trust in him so that's phase two but right now we're in phase one okay And Mm. one gives plenty of opportunities in the boot camp uh, to grow in faith and knowledge of God and in our care for one another.
0: And I suppose there ultimately is salvation from the boot camp.
1: Well, that's it. You see that we are promised in the Bible that in the phase two, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. uh, There will be no more pain. And it's something we can really look forward to. And I think that should be and is. A huge encouragement for people right now who are suffering from COVID or cancer or many other things in life. You know, and then if um, you know, if God's plan is they don't have many days left on this earth, they have an opportunity then to put themselves right with God and get ready because uh, that's the sensible thing to do is to get ready for phase two because it's it's coming soon. So, Dennis, will science save us? Well, science will save us from a lot of things in this life, and we should be so thankful to science for doing that. It'll save us in the area of coronavirus. It will help to save us in many other um, terrible illnesses that will face us all. It's beginning to save us so much better in the realm of cancer. The Cancer research is coming on so well, and we should be so thankful for that. But ultimately, it will not save us in terms of our eternal life and we need to be thinking about our eternity and the fact that it is god who ultimately will save us for phase two this wonderful new life that is to come for those who put their trust in christ
0: but well, let me leave you with some of the bible's answer to the big question will science save us from acts 4:12, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved Look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Many thanks to our guest today, Dr. Dennis Alexander.
1: And thank you very much.
0: Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a
1: podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions.